Welcome back to Drink Less, Live More. This week, I'm going to be talking about well-being as a hobby. You know, I coach a lot of people individually, lots of professional people that are, you know, looking to level up or they just feel like something's missing, they don't know what it is, and they want help just gaining some clarity around that. And oftentimes, I'll ask, what do they do for fun? Like, what is play for them? outside of work, maybe taking care of the family, um, taking care of the house. What do they do for fun? And so many of them cannot answer that question. And it's relatable for me. When I first reached out to my coach seven, eight years ago, I didn't have a clue what I enjoyed doing anymore. I was so knee deep in my career, knee deep in raising little babies and having little babies and pregnancies and losses and all those things that I totally lost sight of me as an individual and the things that I really enjoyed doing. And so all the time and energy just went to everyone else. So that's probably relatable for you as well. I think it's how alcohol became a hobby for me (laughs) because there was limited time Um, sometimes you had to do your hobbies at home because the kids were asleep or they went to bed early and then it was like, cool, we can drink some wine. We're already exhausted. Um, so let's share cocktails or wine and watch a movie or watch TV. And then we fell asleep, you know, so that was kind of where the, the hobby came from. And so as I've been working more and more with clients, and this is also something from my own personal playbook you know, I've been talking to them about the idea that your health and your well-being can be a hobby. It takes a lot of time and effort, honestly, but it can be something that we can actually grow to really enjoy. I love taking great care of myself. I really do. But I had to start with getting rid of the alcohol in my body and getting rid of regular alcohol use in order to really understand what that could feel like. So when I was drinking a bottle of wine most days, I was still working out. This is actually a very common thing for people that are over drinkers. They still work out because if they're still working out and they're still getting up in the morning and doing all these things, then they clearly can't have a problem because they're still working out um, and they're still going to work every day and they're still doing all these things. But, you know, I say it all the time, if it's a problem for you, then it's a problem. Like, it doesn't really matter how it measures up to someone that might have a substance use disorder or someone that, you know, stole their sister's car and crashed it into the liquor store just to get, you know, their their nightly alcohol fix. You know, like, that's not relatable for most of us. But it still doesn't mean that alcohol is not getting in our way. And I had done it for so long and used alcohol for so long that it was just my new normal. I didn't know that life could be different and that you could actually enjoy your workout. I remember going so many times in the early mornings to Orange Theory, somewhat hungover. You know, I mean, it was like I woke up groggy from drinking the night before. Sometimes it was just a couple of drinks and I still felt groggy. Like my workout wasn't as good. I had the metrics. Um, from Orange Theory that told me that after I stopped drinking and started, you know, going in and working out, doing the same routine, my metrics look totally different. I was getting a much more productive workout. And so 
I highly encourage you to to try that. Like just look at it as a like I was looking at it as an experiment. And I love experiments and you know, adding in maybe new things, taking things away, let's see which variables make a big difference in my life. And so, you know, that was a big thing for me to recognize that oh my gosh, I actually enjoy exercise and working out when I feel good and when I'm not hungover doing it. So interesting, because before it kind of felt like hell, to be honest. Like it was like, oh my gosh, I got to go and do this and I feel terrible and I got a bit of a headache or just feel a little foggy, you know, how your head just feels a little bit fogged. And I, you know, I just didn't realize that I could like it. So that's a huge thing to recognize is that maybe you actually like exercise when you aren't drinking. Maybe it actually feels really good for you. So I'm going to talk through just what well-being is. You know, when I first started my business four and a half years ago, I was doing lots of talks on well-being because, you know, I have a background in nursing and healthcare, and well-being is a huge part of my own personal strategy for living a happy life. But I just see so many people really struggle with what it means. Like we hear self-care, we hear well-being. What does that mean for you? And you might be surprised with some of these pillars that I'm going to talk through. I know I've talked about some of these before, and if you've joined my program or you have joined my 14-day break from booze, you've, you've been exposed to these. But there's a few that I want to add. So I do want to talk uh, first just about general health. You know, that's not one that I necessarily talk about, but I think it is sort of the pillar or the thing that cascades down to all of these other things. And, you know, I talked in my resilience episode about how how health is actually the one thing, the one pillar in those six domains that actually affects all of the other domains. So it actually makes the other domains either better or worse. So I truly believe that the way we take care of our physical health, our mental health, how much we sleep, how much exercise we get, the foods we put in our bodies, I do think that those make a huge impact in all areas, all aspects of our life. Interestingly enough, for a long time, I did all those things and I wasn't considering how alcohol was contributing to negative health impacts and and trickling down to all the other things. And it certainly was. So, you know, I find it interesting when people are like, I'm really healthy, I do all these things, but then we, you know, drink bottles of wine on the weekends or, you know, almost every night like I was doing. So, you know, health, I think is a big one. I think we know what this is. Like, this is not like at this point you have access to all this. People know what healthy food is. People know exercise is good for us. People know quality sleep is a big thing. Like we all get it. So that's an easy one. But then we get into some of these other areas that are a little tougher. They're deeper. They're harder to get to. You know, I mentioned the word self-care. I don't call it that. It's just been misused and thrown around lightly. I call it soul care. And that's a whole lot deeper. So it's not a sort of external thing that you do. It's an internal thing that you do. Like what really lights your soul on fire? And I'm not talking about big stuff here. Like one of mine is like, I can listen to running water and just have a peaceful environment for 20 minutes. That's soul care for me. That feels so good deep down inside that I love to do that. So, you know, soul care is something more internal. So it's not about the things you do. It's not about the bubble baths. It's certainly not Chardonnay, which what a load of shit we've been sold as women 
that alcohol is the way to self-care. Like, what? No, like this doesn't even make any sense. So, you know, soul care is, is one of those pillars that I think is critical for well-being. And like I said, most of my clients don't know what that is for them. So you have to start to explore that. Sometimes I do something called the sensory love list, which is Martha Beck's work that helps bring some of these small things out that really are soul care for us. And so this, these do not have to be big, huge things. Okay. Soul care can also be being in nature for me. That doesn't mean I have to travel to a place that is beautiful and I have to do that consistently in order to get that. I can walk outside my front door and see that, but also I enjoy the traveling of seeing places that I've never seen before and just how magnificent um, just the whole world is like how these things were all just created and it's fascinating to me. So there's a lot of peace that comes with that. So look at soul care, like find the small little things that feel like soul care to you and just do a few more of those. Uh, the other one is self-love or self-compassion. This again on the surface sounds so easy. Well, yeah, of course I've loved myself, but do you really? most of us don't. I mean, most of us really, really struggle with this. We will give grace and empathy and compassion to all the people around us. And then we make one minor mistake and bam, we're off to the self-criticism races and, you know, we're not good enough for anything now. Like we'll get to like, I'm not worthy of anything by the end of it. And a lot of these thoughts can be unconscious. So we have to uncover those thoughts. I know they were certainly unconscious to me, I, I would have answered, do you love yourself seven, eight years ago? I'd have been like, well, yeah, of course. Of course I do. Why would you not love yourself? But that was sort of the surface level answer. Deep down inside, I was brutal to myself. I mean, just I would, I would have never been friends with me then, ever. I was horrible to myself. So sort of my rule here is if you catch yourself saying something to yourself that you would not say to a friend that you love – then maybe it's time to hit the pause button and ask yourself, you know, why am I having these thoughts? And what are the emotions that I'm experiencing behind these thoughts? And then what are the actions? Like, what are the results of me telling myself I'm not good enough? Uh, there's probably not any real positive, productive results coming from that. So that's a big one. Self-love, self-care. You've heard me talk about it before. Or soul care, sorry. Um, you've heard me talk about both those before. That's not not a new one. Um, self-awareness, you know, people would not probably put that in the well-being category, but I 100% think that self-awareness is a critical pillar for us in order to be truly happy, healthy, and well. And here's why. So if we don't understand our patterns of behavior that are either serving us or not serving us, we can't possibly solve some of our problems, right? So if we have this like really nasty pattern of behavior that's been there for a really long time. Your brain's just like, this is comfortable. I'm going to keep doing this. And you keep doing the same thing over and over. You know, I get clients that are like, I just feel like I'm self-sabotaging. I'm doing the same thing over and over. Okay. Well, self-awareness can help with this. It's not going to get you to the end result, but it's a starting point. We have to understand why we are doing the things we are doing. So then we can solve for the actual problem. We can start to reintroduce new patterns of behavior. We can catch these old patterns of behavior. We can understand where our blind spots are. We can understand where our barriers are. You know, what is getting in my way? And here is a huge, massive secret. Most of the time it's you. Almost every single time 
I have a client that comes to me. First of all, they start with blaming other people. I did the same thing. So no shame or shade. It was everyone else's fault. Um, and that really, like when I got down to it, I was my problem. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Taylor Swift, hundred percent has that song nailed down. So we have to be able to build that self-awareness. And you know, you've heard me talk about the Enneagram a whole bunch. I'm still in love with it. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and I still just, I still, I, I did not found a better self-awareness tool than the Enneagram if you really want to dive into it. So there's lots of opportunity there for self-awareness. And then we want to turn that into some self-wisdom and be able to actually move through the world in a completely different way. So create new patterns of behavior that are serving us versus these old patterns that we've just been doing because it's the only way we've known. And they seem comfortable to our brains. So our brain's like almost fighting against us, you know, like, well, don't say anything. Don't try to rock the boat. This feels comfortable. Um, But, you know, we have to challenge our own brains and say, is this really comfortable for me? To keep doing the same thing, to keep feeling like I'm sabotaging myself? The answer is probably no. So another big piece that's kind of intertwined with self-awareness that I think is critical for well-being is emotional intelligence. And, you know, I've talked about this one before, too. We hear this word thrown around, especially in the corporate world. Oh, they need more emotional intelligence. And it's like, okay, well, what does that actually mean? And for me, my own personal definition of that is that I understand and can name the emotions that I'm experiencing. I can understand the thoughts behind the emotion that I'm experiencing, and I can challenge my thoughts that are painful in order to move through that emotion. So you know, to give you an example of my, you know, earlier, the earlier example of self-criticism. So like, I'm not good enough, you know, (laughs) like that was, that's sort of like where we can get to, like, that's sort of the, the deepest, most shame inducing thoughts. I shouldn't say the most, because there's a lot more shame inducing critical thoughts for sure. But you know, that's a big one. Like I am not good enough. I'm not good enough for anything. I suck at everything. And then you have these emotions that come with that. For me, it's usually just sadness. Um, Sometimes I'll have some, you know, like regret that comes in there. Like, oh my gosh, some guilt, some shame. Sometimes some anger. I get angry at myself. Sometimes I direct that at other people. And so if I start to dismantle that thought and I start to say, wait a minute, is that really true that I'm not enough? I have a whole, literally a physical evidence box that I keep that I go through when I'm experiencing that self-criticism and I see these thank you notes and these messages and emails and handwritten notes that say, you changed my life or you set my life on the, on the trajectory that I was wanting it to be on. And I can't thank you enough. And sometimes I get those like three, four years afterwards. And it's like, Whoa, you know, I am doing something really great. Last week I had a huge win with one of my corporate clients where, you know, I was coaching um, one of their team members and the leader of the team, you know, had shared with me, she was really struggling. She didn't know if this was the right fit for her. I knew that from our coaching conversations, I invited both of them to have a very vulnerable, clear conversation with one another. Cause they were both knowing it was tense, but like not having the hard brave conversation they did. And her performance has completely changed. They understand one another. They both shared with me independently oh my gosh, 
we had a, such a shift in our relationship. Like we feel like we're in such a better place because you encouraged us to have a brave conversation. Bam. Like I have all this evidence to prove I am good enough. And so that's where I start to dismantle like the anger towards myself, the sadness, the regret, the shame, all those things, because it's just not even true. Like it's laughable when I start to really slow my brain down long enough to question it. And then I get different results. You know, it's like, I don't have this sluggish feeling. Like when I'm in that space, I have zero energy. I just feel like like I'll say like a sloth or I feel like a slug. Like, I just feel like I'm moving slower. I don't have any creativity. I don't have any physical or emotional energy. Everything's just kind of blah. So, you know, that's not serving me. So I have to, I have to challenge myself. So that's kind of the example of how I believe self-awareness, emotional intelligence, even that soul care, self-care kind of comes into play. So it's all kind of one big enmeshed thing that we have to work on. The last one I want to talk about from a well-being perspective is relationships. So, you know, we just came off of Valentine's Day and I did a few posts on this, you know, on Instagram and some other places. I find it interesting that we focus in on romantic love oftentimes, you know, and we've heard of Valentine's Day, obviously. It's not just for romance, but, you know, we've sort of been taught that, like, that's the only person you're supposed to love as if you're having sex with them. <laughs> and I just, I think that's a screwed up message, you know, especially for women. My relationships outside of my marriage are so important to me and so critical. And honestly, I didn't think they were until maybe, you know, the last five, six years. And then with the pandemic, it was kind of like, oh, good. You know, like I have an excuse to not go out because sometimes I have to force myself to go out. I am an introvert. I can be avoidant of some relationships, but every time I go and I have, you know, good conversations with these women, unique conversations, they bring out a part of me that I love. And that's why I spend time with them. I love it. Like I, I feel so much more energized. I just feel like, I have more people in my tribe, more people in my corner, people that love me. It's validating that I am enough because they invited me to go with them. So it's like, well, clearly I must not be such a horrific person. Um, or they wouldn't, you know, invite me to come out with them. Um, they wouldn't keep texting me or checking in with me. They wouldn't ask me to go on vacations with them, you know? So there's just a lot there. I think it can really be good for our self-esteem to have those relationships. I've been, doing just a little bit of reading and research just around friendship and how to build friendship. And as I have evolved as a person, I've needed to move some people out of that friend circle. Not there that there's anything wrong with those people. Um, but I've just evolved past maybe that particular relationship. I've had to learn to incorporate new people that are in that same space, or maybe a few steps ahead of me into my friend circle and into those relationships. And that, that can be kind of tough, you know, like it feels like you're back in middle school sending a message to somebody like, check yes or no, do you want to be my friend? Let's go, you know? Um, so it can be vulnerable. Like it's hard to feel like maybe you've been rejected or that maybe somebody's going to say no. But what I've recognized in the research is that most people actually like you in general. Like they, you know, like they don't dislike you as much as you think they do. So we really overestimate the idea that people will just immediately not like us. Most people immediately do like us. 
unless we show up as an asshole, you know, like obviously if we start showing up that way, that's not going to maintain relationships. But if you're showing up and you're genuinely interested in the other person, they're going to like you like, come on, you know? So I think that is a huge component to well-being. And there's research that backs that up. They actually say loneliness is more dangerous for us than smoking, um, more dangerous than alcohol use, you know, obviously within like limits. Um, but yeah, really interesting that that could be a part of, of our well-being strategy. So as I lay all those out and I think of well-being as a hobby, my gosh, like that, all that takes a fair amount of time and energy. And I don't know about all of you, but that's about the amount of free time that I personally have is, is to do all of these things. And so I have just said, like, this is like a hobby. It's not a nice to have hobby. It's a must have hobby. And these are just like non-negotiables. I don't let these go anymore. When I feel myself slipping back into old patterns of behavior, especially with the relationship one, it's really easy for me to cancel plans. Um, I call myself on it. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. This is not good for me. And I need to get myself out there. You know, I set up lunches and coffees with people that I find just interesting and want to have a good conversation with often because I mostly work from home and that can get lonely. And I can tell myself, I can tuck myself into it real fast that this is amazing. I don't have to see another person. I love being alone. And to a degree that is true. And then there is another part that's like, but this is not completely healthy for me to do all of the time. So, you know, it's like, I'm probably 75% I like being alone, 25% I need to be with people, but I can talk myself into 100%. I could never see another human being and I'd be fine. And that's just not true. Like we're not built that way. We're not designed that way. So I want you to think about this idea of well-being being a hobby of yours and not stress about like, oh gosh, I have to have all these other hobbies. I used to paint or I used to play music or I used to do this. Uh, If it doesn't feel right, maybe that's just something that, you know, that was in that season of life and it needs to be moved on. And it's not right now. Maybe it'll be someday, but not right now. So think about well-being as being a hobby, starting with the alcohol part of it. Like let's, let's cut it out for a while if you are still drinking or let's really evaluate if you stop drinking, how much better you are from a well-being standpoint and how that is increasing maybe your love of exercise, your love of healthy eating. I don't know about all of you, but when I was drinking a bottle of wine most days, uh, I didn't exactly want to like wake up and eat a salad. I was like, where's the greasy food? I need bacon immediately. It's easy for me to eat healthy when I'm not drinking. So easy for me. So think about that as you move through the next week and how you can incorporate some of these things into your life and to make them a hobby because it can feel daunting to think we have to add more things into our lives. But maybe if we think of it as a hobby, we might be able to trick our brains a little bit into this, like this is a fun thing for me to do versus a have to do thing. And then you'll start getting results and you'll start to see, oh, actually, I I don't even have to trick my brain anymore. I actually do find this to be fun and enjoyable. So have a great week. Again, if you have any topic ideas, I'm always open to those. I'm getting into some interviews coming up over the next few weeks. And so there's going to be some people sharing their stories, both men and women sharing their stories about cutting out alcohol, being alcohol free. Some of them have had a long time alcohol-free, which I love to hear that because they're a few steps ahead of me. Some of them have had a shorter time alcohol-free, but I love hearing all those perspectives. I think they're really helpful for all of us to kind of hear stories and 
relatable stories that make sense for us. So have a great week. We'll talk soon.